We now go into the last part of the emptiness section, if em- emptiness can have parts. So this is uh, page 210 in the uh, text. These simple instructions point out again and again that it is through wise contemplation and investigation of all experience and seeing its essential emptiness that the heart is released from its bondage to the cycles of death and rebirth. These teachings are of such universality and potency that they are amongst those most widely studied and practiced throughout the Buddhist tradition. For example, this is from the Vajra Sutra, Subhuti, someone might fill measureless asankhayas of world systems with the seven precious gems, and give them as a gift. But if a good man or a good woman who has resolved their heart on Bodhi, on enlightenment, were to take from this sutra even as few as four lines of verse, and receive, hold, read, recite, and extensively explain them for others, their blessings would surpass the others. How should it be explained to others? With no grasping at marks, thus, thus unmoving. And why? All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Along with the similarity of imagery, like dews, uh, dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, dewdrops and a lightning flash. It's also interesting to note that the above scripture of the northern tradition employs a method of comparison very close to that found in many Pali suttas. For example, in the Velama Sutta, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha describes a previous existence wherein he made an offering of incalculable richness. However, after a long list of increasingly beneficial actions, he states that it would be more fruitful than all the actions described there, quote, to sustain the insight into impermanence for merely as long as a finger snap. Thus, as in the Vajra Sutra quotation, clearly delineating wisdom as the most precious commodity of all. So the Vilama Sutta it starts off by the Buddha saying in a previous life he was a Brahmin uh, uh, called Vilama and he gave uh, this offering of 84,000 pots of gold filled with silver, 84,000 silver pots filled with gold, uh, 10,000 elephants, 10,000 horses, etc., etc. And then having made that offering, uh, that was uh, uh, very meritorious, but then um, he said even more meritorious than that is keeping the five precepts. And uh, even more meritorious than keeping the five precepts is to practice loving-kindness for the time it takes to milk a cow. Mm. Roughly 20 minutes, <laughs> give or take. And uh, <clears throat> again, there's a long list of these. This is a kind of synopsis. And then he said, but even more uh, meritorious than practicing loving-kindness for the time it takes to milk a cow uh, is to sustain the insight into anicca, impermanence, just for a finger snap. So you might think, well, that's a cheap way of doing it. You know, 84,000 uh, gold pots filled with silver and, and billions and billions of uh, lakhs of rupees and all you can kind of and can make as much merit just with enough Anicca to fill a finger snap. But it has to be not just thinking the word Anicca. It's a genuine insight into uncertainty and impermanence. Of all the teachings on emptiness to be found in the northern tradition, probably the most ubiquitous, means uh, being found everywhere, is the Heart Sutra. It is recited daily in Buddhist communities from Ladakh to Hokkaido in the north of Japan, 
from Taiwan to Lake Baikal in, uh, in Russia, not to mention Buddhist monasteries and centers throughout the Western world. It is considered to embody the essence of the wisdom teachings of the Buddha. It, too, is structured around the insight into the true nature of the five khandhas. So this is the uh, Heart of Prajnaparamita Sutra, um, and so this is the uh, Buddhist Text Translation Society translation. When Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was practicing the profound Prajnaparamita, he illuminated the five skandhas and saw that they were all empty, and he crossed beyond all suffering and difficulty. Shariputra. Form does not differ from emptiness, emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself is form. So too are feeling, cognition, formations, and consciousness. Shariputra. All dharmas are empty of characteristics. They are not produced, not destroyed, not defiled, not pure, and they, are neither, they neither increase nor diminish. Therefore, in emptiness there is no form, feeling, cognition, formations or consciousness, no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind, no sights, sounds, smells, tastes, objects of touch or dharmas, no field of the eyes up to and including no field of mind consciousness, no ignorance or ending of ignorance. So that's referring to the whole Paticca Samuppada. Uh, from ignorance all the way up to uh, uh, from, you know, feeling, uh, craving, uh, clinging, uh, birth and death and suffering. So no ignorance or ending of ignorance up to and including no old age and death or ending of old age and death. There is no suffering, no origination, no extinction and no way and no understanding and no attaining. Because nothing is attained, the Bodhisattva, through reliance on Prajna Paramita, is unimpeded in his mind. Because there is no impediment, he is not afraid, and he leaves distorted dream thinking far behind. Ultimately, nirvana. All Buddhas of the three periods of time attain Anuttara Samyaksambodhi through reliance on Prajnaparamita. Therefore, know that Prajnaparamita is a great spiritual mantra, a great bright mantra, a supreme mantra, an unequaled mantra. It can remove all suffering. It is genuine and not false. That is why the mantra of Prajnaparamita Paramita was spoken, recited like this, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasangate, Bodhi, Swaha. So that uh, is a probably a very familiar text to most of you, anyone who's spent time in, um, the, uh, in uh, Buddhist centers. Uh, it probably, they recite this in Tibetan, in Tibetan centers, uh, certainly in Japanese, um, uh, in uh, uh, Japanese monasteries, Zen monasteries, Zen centers um, throughout the world. Uh, in Chinese monasteries, this is from a Chinese uh, Buddhist community in uh, Northern California, uh, very close to Abayagiri, Abayagiri Monastery, where I lived. And the, the land at Abayagiri Monastery was actually donated, uh, half of it was donated by Master Xuanhua, who was the, the kind of founder of this Buddhist uh, text translation society community, the city of 10,000 Buddhas. So we have a, a close a connection with them, and so that uh, this is uh, speaking about the empty nature of the five khandhas, also the empty nature of the four noble truths. There is no suffering, no origination, no uh, uh, no cessation, and no uh, no path. Was it the um, uh, no suffering, no origination, no extinction, and no way, no understanding, and no attaining? So uh, uh, saying empty, 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 really empty. Um, where the mind is trying to create uh, any anything, so in this respect, uh, it's uh, it can seem to be a kind of contradiction to the 
uh, Southern Buddhist uh, teaching, like no suffering, no origination, no, no, uh, no extinction, no cessation, and no way. Um, but uh, I would say that that's uh, rather than being a negation of uh, the, the Pali, it's uh, in a way trying to give a, a perspective on uh, the teachings, also the teachings of dependent origination. That uh, it's uh, saying, you know, no ignorance, no ending of ignorance, no, uh, no, uh, no birth, no, no aging, no death, and so on. That saying all of those things are, are empty, uh, empty of substance. But yet we also have <coughs> the Buddha in his first discourse giving the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which is the sort of linchpin of the, the teachings in the southern and also the Buddhist, the northern Buddhist world. Uh, was it? teachings by His Holiness the Dalai Lama in, in London on the Four Noble Truths uh, uh, several days, many years back at the, the Barbican in London. Um, also, the Buddha's own description of his, his enlightenment after his full awakening sitting under the Bodhi tree according to the Southern Buddhist scriptures. For the first week he contemplated dependent origination in the arising mode. Then in the second week uh, with, uh, sitting under the tree without moving, he contemplated dependent origination in its cessation mode, and then the third week he contemplated dependent origination in, it, in its arising and its cessation mode. So for the first first three weeks, sitting under the Bodhi tree, <coughs> that's all the Buddha was thinking about. And so this text is saying it's empty. <laughs> there's there's no thing there. So it, rather than saying it doesn't matter or it has no value, it is giving that that angle uh, of um, don't reify this, don't make this into a, a thing, don't make this an object of grasping, don't be an owner of it, don't be a, a, a possessor or, or cling to these principles in, in any ways. It's also interesting, one of the things I like to point out with respect to the Heart Sutra is that often, it, whether you're in a Tibetan center or a, uh, a, a Zen center or a Chinese center, uh, in the pujas, in the, the, the daily recitations, where you'd have the Heart Sutra, you'd also be reciting the Bodhisattva vows, where some um, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, uh, afflictions are limitless, I vow to cut them all off, uh, the, the Buddha way is supreme, I vow to accomplish it, Dharma doors are, are endless, uh, uh, I vow to enter them all. That's the, the four Bodhisattva vows, if I remember them correctly. So that, uh, and they're side by side, so this is saying no suffering, no origination, no cessation, no path, and then the Bodhisattva vows are saying, everybody's suffering and they really matter. Don't forget everybody else. Yeah. Everyone, afflictions are everywhere. Don't forget that. Um, the, uh, there are uh, 84,000 Dhamma doors. There are 84,000 skillful means that can be cultivated. And that the, the Buddha way is supreme. Not only can suffering come to an end, but Buddhahood can be realized. So that the, the, and those are recited side by side. By side. And so... Uh, it's interesting that the, the four Bodhisattva vows are explicitly based upon the Four Noble Truths. But that's where they originate from, uh, as I understand it, thus have I heard. That, uh, that's the origin of them, is that it's a, a way of taking the Four Noble Truths, so rather than there, uh, the First Noble Truth, there is Dukkha, Idang Dukkham. Uh, it extends from that to living beings are numberless, so all beings are suffering, that suffering is everywhere, uh, I vow to save them all, so that not just the suffering that's in this being, but to attend to, to the suffering of all beings. So it's deliberately extending the zone of consideration from number one to, uh, to all beings. And then the cause of suffering, uh, dukkha samudaya, uh, the cause of dukkha 
is, uh, is craving. Yeah. Afflictions are limitless. I'm bound to cut them all off, not just in this being, but in, in, in all other beings. That's the, the uh, extending the second noble truth to apply to all beings to the extent possible to help all other beings to cut, their, cut off their afflictions. Then um, the, uh, the fourth one, the third one, um, the uh, cessation of suffering. The, you know, the, Buddha, we, the Buddha way is supreme. I vow to accomplish it. Buddhahood is possible, total enlightenment. And Buddhahood is, is possible, not just arahantship, but even Buddhahood is possible. So that uh, uh, should be kept within view. And then uh, the, uh, the Eightfold Path you know, is, uh, is sort of in the, um, uh, the Four Noble Truths. The, the fourth truth is the truth of the path leading to the ending of Dukkha. Again, not just for this being, but for the, for the, uh, the benefit and the ending of suffering in all beings. The Dharma doors are limitless. I vow to enter them all. I vow to cultivate every possible skillful means to end the, the suffering of all beings. So that, uh, that the, four noble, the Four Noble Truths um, uh, are in the Heart Sutra, they're emptied out, and in the Bodhisattva vows, they're extended to encompass all beings. So are they, uh, are they uh, empty or are they universal? <laughs> so my, uh, my reflection on this, also spending many, many years uh, living alongside Ajahn Sumedho and listening to his teachings, he would often say that the reason why the Four Noble Truths are called noble is because they're not absolute. So dukkha is not an absolute reality. It's, it's a noble truth because it's a truth that's relative, but it leads to nobility. It leads to the arya, the, the heart that is purified. That, uh, so that it's very specific why they're called the arya, uh, the noble truths, the four arya, uh, arya sacha, arya sacha because uh, they're not uh, paramata sancha, they're not ultimate truths, they're noble truths. So this is Ajahn Sumedha's own reflection on it. So uh, oftentimes in the Theravada world it, dri- it drifts towards these are ultimate truths. <laughs> suffering is an ultimate reality. But if suffering was an ultimate reality, there'd be no way to get away from it. Our, 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 the fundamental nature of our reality would be dukkha. So what to do, huh? <laughs> Go to the beach. That's just a joke. <laughs> Go paragliding, you know. <laughs> uh, so that the, um, the, the Four Noble Truths are not a condemnation of reality or the human potential, but rather saying, there is the experience of suffering. We are all less and totally happy all of the time. Right? Again, that's not psychic power, that's just statistics. Yeah, that's why the, the Buddha taught, is that we're not all perfectly happy all of the time. And in a sense... Um, that's where he started with his, um, his first five disciples. So when, he, after, when he was in Leibniz, he was making his journey back to Varanasi. As he was walking along the road, he met this other uh, uh, sannyasin, a, a wanderer called Upaka. And Upaka kind of saw the, the newly enlightened Buddha walking towards him on the road and thought, wow, who is this? Because he was obviously very radiant and he was extremely tall, supposed to be very good looking, and probably kind of luminous with his uh, uh, kind of, uh, experience of enlightenment. So Upaka stopped him and said, well, yeah, who, who are you, friend? You know, your, your, uh, your face looks really radiant. Your, your bearing is incredibly peaceful. You're, you've obviously awakened to some kind, of, uh, some kind of experience. You've awakened to some kind of truth. Uh, 
who are you and, and what is it that you've realized? And then the Buddha said, um, it's true, I, I have awakened to, uh, to the ultimate reality, I've awakened to the deathless, and in fact I'm the only enlightened being in the whole world. And uh, so Upaka says, well, uh, good for you, friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he uh, says, yes, and, and uh, I'm the only enlightened being in the, in the world, so I'm on my way to Varanasi, to Kasi's city, to beat the drum of deathlessness. And then uh, Upaka says, well, uh, okay, friend, yeah. fine, fine. Yeah. We've all met a few people on the street like that, I'm sure. <laughs> want to share their enlightenment with you. And so Upaka said, okay. Good for you, friend. Fine, you yeah. and then left by a different path. So the Buddha saying, you know, I have realized complete and full enlightenment. You know, I've awakened to the deathless. I am the ultimate reality. So okay, that didn't work. <laughs> so he he saw he was a quick learner. So he saw okay, declaration doesn't work. So by the time he got to the deer park, that deer park, not this deer park, the uh, one out in uh, in Varanasi. By the time he got to the deer park. And then he spoke to the, uh, he met up with his five companions. When they first saw him, they thought, oh, it's that monk Gotama. He used to be our friend, our teacher, but he kind of flopped out. You know, he started eating food and was a, was a failure as an ascetic. You know, we shouldn't pay respects to him. We should just uh, ignore him and not be, not be polite. But uh, as, the sto- as the story goes, as he approached, they couldn't stop themselves from jumping up and paying respects and... and uh, Helping to wash his feet and, and giving, him, giving him a place to sit down. They kind of couldn't control their, their kind of devotion. And so then uh, he said they, to, to his five companions, the deathless has been realized. You know, the the, the uh, enlightenment has been, has been, uh, has been actualized. Um, and if you listen to what I have to say, then in no long time you two will realize the same truth. They said, how can you be enlightened? You, know, you gave up, you were kind of eating rice porridge and you, you gave up on the ascetic life and you, 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 you flaked out, you, know, you can't possibly be enlightened. And again, this exchange happens three times. So, second time the Buddha says, dear, dear friends, listen, you know, the, the deathless has been realized. If you listen to me in no long time, you, know, you too will awaken to the same truth. You know, how can you be enlightened? Tatiyampi, the deathless has been realized. <laughs> if you listen. And then after the third time, they say, How can you possibly be enlightened? You, know, you gave up on the spiritual path and you're eating ordinary food and you kind of gave up on your austerities. He said, Friends, <clears throat> have I ever spoken to you in this way before? Said, no, you haven't. So, listen, friends. <laughs> and then uh, they said, Okay. So they, they agreed to, to listen. And then he gave the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. So the declaration of, 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 um, so about ultimate reality didn't have a, a particularly beneficial effect. So then he used the way of analysis, what's called vibhajyavada. Okay, let's, let's kind of dismantle this thing. Let's, let's take this apart. Let's uh, uh, unpack this, as we would say in Western society. Deconstruct. Uh, so... In, in a sense, he's saying, okay, if there is an ultimate reality, why are we not happy all of the time? If that is the fundamental nature of, 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 of life, of our being, of what we are, and of all the universe, if there is an ultimate reality, why are we not happy? If, that's the, the na- if the, that dhamma, if that, if that ultimate reality is the fundamental nature of all things, how come we're not happy? That's the kind of unspoken... A premise of what, how he's talking. So, um, 
uh, he, then he explains the, the middle way and then the, the Four Noble Truths. Idang Dukang, there is Dukkha. There is the experience of, of Dukkha. And then he points out that Dukkha has a cause. Uh, it arises on account of the three kinds of desire. Kamatanha, sense desire. Bhavatanha, the desire to become, the desire to be. Vibhavatanha, the desire to not be, the desire to get rid of. That's the cause. So the symptom is Dukkha. The cause uh, of the infection, the ailment, is these three kinds of craving. The prognosis uh, is it's curable. And then the treatment is the Eightfold Path. So that he kind of unpacks it in, the, in this sort of analytical way. Um, and so rather than believing that he's realized the ultimate reality, he said, okay, if you look at it like this, so this is the, this is the feeling of dis, uh, dis, dissatisfaction, discontent, unhappiness that you have. And where does it come from? It comes from this self-centered craving. Okay, if the craving stops, then what happens? So for each of the Four Noble Truths, then there's a way of working with them. So they're not truths to be believed in, but rather they are um, they, uh, tasks to be performed in relationship to each one of those propositions. So uh, there is dukkha. So, okay, that is to be apprehended or to be, to be acknowledged. So that a lot of the time we don't realize that there is suffering. Uh, we're just moving away from it or trying to numb ourselves to it or, 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 um, uh, the, or to distract the mind from it. We'll just complain about it. <laughs> so the, the, the response to dukkha or the way of working with it that he describes is parinyayanti, which means it needs to be understood or apprehended or appreciated so that, oh, uh, somebody just insults us or somebody takes the last orange that you were just about to, to take a hold of and you go, oh. So then rather than how can I get another orange? In that moment, with wisdom, there's a recognition, oh, this is dukkha. Separation from the liked is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. Okay, the orange might have been the cause, but this is dukkha. So in that moment, there's a recognition of that that dukkha, that dissatisfaction has been apprehended, it's been received, it's been... And Ajahn Sumedha would use the word understood, like you stand under it. It's like, okay, got it, you caught it. It's landed in your hands. So this is dukkha. This is the, uh, the feeling of, of dissatisfaction. This is the it-shouldn't-be-this-way feeling. That's what this is. Then uh, dukkha samudaya, the origin, the cause of dukkha. So it's coming from this, I want an orange, I didn't get an orange. I'm not asking for oranges, it's just a random example. <laughs> so... Uh, that, oh, the, the cause of that dukkha is the feeling that I wanted that, I, I, I deserved that, I was looking forward to that, that sense desire. Because of that, there's this feeling of lack, that cause. So recognizing that that was the cause, the, the appropriate action, the rep- appropriate response, the task involved with that uh, craving, self-centered craving, is let go, pahatabanti. To, it should be let go of, it needs to be let go of. So that, that sense desire or the desire to become, the desire to, uh, to not be, to annihilate, that needs to be let go of. So letting go is not the same as annihilation. Vibhavatana often disguises itself as letting go, I'm letting go, I'm letting go. Yeah. So you no. so can kind of put on a, a mask of, of uh, letting go, but it's really I want to get rid of. So that's one of the kind of meditation. Uh, uh, the 
traps that we fall into. So uh, the second noble truth needs to, uh, the cause needs to be let go of. The third noble truth, uh, that of the ending of dukkha, that uh, there can be uh, there can be peace, there can be clarity, there can be freedom. Uh, that needs to be realized. Satchikata Bhanti. Satcha means truth or, or reality. Satchikata Bhanti. So, when the letting go has happened, and then the dukkha has stopped, we need to notice that. Like I was saying the other day about noticing space. Space is not interesting. It doesn't grab our attention. It's the... the but if you notice how when there's a lot of noise... Uh, and there's a, you know, the dogs are barking loudly or the birds are really loud or the vehicles are churning away uh, then the mind goes to that and then they stop if you notice this morning there was the, the bird song was very quiet and there was almost no dogs no traffic noise it was very quiet so how many of us noticed it's really quiet this morning and then stayed noticing it's really quiet this morning uh, it's, it, we might think oh that's that's that uh that's, uh, that's much nicer. And then <laughs> the attention goes off somewhere else. The space, silence, peace doesn't grab our attention. So uh, that third truth is a kind of the hardest to work with because our animal ancestry, our instincts, uh, will, will not <laughs> keep the attention on what is subtle and indistinct, what is quiet and still and silent. It'll go to what's noisy or mobile or loud or smelly or attractive or frightening or you know, annoying you know as in the newspapers it says if it bleeds it leads you know if it's a kind of horror story or a, a kind of a shock or a disaster then front page headlines that's what sells newspapers if it bleeds it leads it's kind of a gruesome principle but that's what I heard in the newspaper industry as it used to be so then that's the the task or the work involved with the third truth is it needs to be realized we need to notice uh, that dukkha has ended and to let it come alive, that, that kind of blossoming uh, of space, silence and stillness, let that be fully awakened. Because the Dhamma is always here, in that silence, in that sort of no-thingness. <laughs> there is the, the Dhamma, that, the ultimate reality of, of, uh, uh, of all things, of our, our nature and the nature of all things. is always here, but because the Dhamma is not a thing, it doesn't, it doesn't have a form or a shape or a sound, doesn't grab our attention, so that the, the heart has to awaken to that quality. Satchikata Bhanti. Then the fourth one, the Eightfold Path, the, the path leading to that, to that ending of Dukkha, the treatment that brings about well-being, uh, that needs to be cultivated. Bhaveta Bhanti. The path needs to be developed. You need to make the trail. You, know, you need to, to, to cut the trail and, and uh, clear it and, and uh, make the path, develop the path and use the path that the work needs to be done in terms of, of uh, the, the path it needs to be cultivated it needs to be developed so in a way the, the four truths are not truths to believe in or to not believe in or to reject but rather they are uh, sort of outlining these uh, areas of, uh, of say um, of work a spiritual work uh, what the problem is what the possibilities are and how to bring about that quality of well-being. So, in this, this sort of, uh, in the true under, or the, the most sort of skillful understanding of the four noble truths, you're not taking them to be absolute. You're saying, well, these are conventional truths. They are empty. They are empty. Suffering is empty. The cause of suffering is empty. The ending of suffering is empty. The path is empty. 
but uh, if it's applied, it's empty of any kind of absolute essence, but if those skillful means are applied in the, the, the right way, without self-view and with uh, uh, attunement to the time, the place, the situation, then they are effective in helping to bring about that ending of dukkha, that sense of, of uh, liberating the heart from those feelings of, of wrongness or incompleteness. So then uh, the bodhisattva vows then are, uh, they arose because, uh, as I understand it in, from Buddhist history, as, as I'm familiar with it, that because there was a, like a, an overemphasis on the, the, the work of the spiritual individual, and so the, the monastics were apparently becoming a kind of spiritual elite, like a sort of priesthood, and that we're special, we're different, we're, and you lot, you can make merit by feeding us and bringing flowers to the temple, but you know, we're doing the, the real work, spiritual work, and and your, your job is just to help us. And, and, and so that's a very sweeping statement, but it seems to have been, uh, it was sort of drifting in that way, so that, that since, the, because the, the Buddha emphasized that necessity to work on your own life, and it kind of drifted to being, okay, therefore my life and working on my life is a bit more important than your life. And then my life is the only important thing, and I'm making, a, a, you, you can really make a lot of merit by helping me to be enlightened, and so that's your job. You only exist to help me be enlightened. And so then there's a kind of uh, dissociation or, or dislocation, uh, a, a kind of separation seemed to have occurred. So it seems that the whole uh, Mahayana movement that uh, sprang up about uh, 400 years after the Buddha, about uh, 100 BC, uh, before the Common Era, in that kind of period, it grew up as a, as a counterpoint to that, saying, well, wait a minute, no, 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 the, 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 the lives and the well-being and the spiritual potential of everybody is, is equally important. So um, we need to expand the view. We need to make sure that uh, everybody is in- included and that, the, um, that uh, uh, say, these teachings and uh, the possibility of, of liberation is being presented in an equal way and people are encouraged to practice in, a, in an equal way. It's not just for this monastic elite. And so... Uh, that's again a broad brush description, but uh, roughly one of the reasons why the uh, the Mahayana movement grew up as a kind of populist movement of Buddhist practice amongst the, the laity as much as the monastics. And it's kind of interesting that within uh, countries like Burma and Thailand, uh, I, I suspect Sri Lanka as well, but certainly the uh, the effort of Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma in the 1950s, founding the Mahasi Yekta as a meditation center right in Rangoon, that was a radical move to actually be setting a place up in order to teach meditation to lay people. A lot of people thought, what? Lay people meditate? Why? Wow, this is insane. But because he had such a high reputation, such regard, people sort of said, okay, well, he's supposed to be an arahant, so get out of the way. You know? <laughs> let, let's see if uh, he thinks it's worthwhile. And then in Thailand, similarly, there was the, the, the um, Sixth Great Council took place in, in Burma in 1956 uh, 57. And Mahasi Sayadaw was the leader of the assembly. And so a number of monks from Thailand who went along to that, and they, they saw the Mahasi Yekta, uh, this lay meditation center, had been founded in Rangoon. They thought, that's a great idea. That's really good. That's, we should have that in, in Thailand as well. So they came back to Thailand and they started teaching meditation at Wat Patnam, at Wat Mahathat and making lay, lay, uh, lay people's meditation programs available and deliberately setting up things to 
Because prior to that, prior to the 1950s, it was considered meditation, if it's of any use at all, it's for the monastics and lay people, we just sort of stay back and it's, it's not for us, that's kind of out of our territory, it's, uh, that's kind of beyond us, we can't possibly uh, make use of that that's in, the, in, the, in the kind of uh, history books or the story books, that's, that's, that's not our, our territory. So great credit to uh, the elders like Mahasi Sayadaw and the, the uh, elders at Wat Pagnam, Wat Mahatat, um, uh, Wat Saket in, uh, uh, in, in Bangkok and uh, in, uh, in Sri Lanka, the different meditation centers um, so grew up uh, to, uh, to be a, uh, presenting meditation teachings and the environment for practice for the lay community. So it's kind of a replication of, I think, what happened in India 2,000 years ago, that they say, hey, wait a minute, this is for everyone. Why do we, why do we assume this is just for this, this little monastic elite? And so I, I suspect over the centuries that's happened a few times. <laughs> it's not just back then, uh, 100 BC and, and, uh, and the 20th century, but rather it's probably, there's been a rhythm of those kind of events uh, over the centuries in different countries, probably exactly the same in Tibet and China and Japan and Korea, that you had this kind of... Um, uh, isolation of a, of a monastic elite of sort of professional meditators and, and the lay, uh, lay community uh, often at the edges and then that sort of uh, more of an integrated form of practice. I don't, I don't really know the history of Northern Buddhism so well, but uh, I suspect that it's occurred that way. So uh, in, in this respect, if the Four Noble Truths, as they are presented in the, in, in the Southern Buddhist world, the Theravada world, if they are understood correctly, then they both imply that they are empty, <laughs> they are, they're not absolute truths, they are, they're empty, they're skillful means to be applied, but also it's not just you know, my life and my practice and, and my world that's, it, that's important, but rather it's, um, uh, you know, this life need, is, the, is the main zone of, 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 uh, of work, but this life is connected to, to other lives. And so there's a particularly significant sutta uh, in this respect called the, the Bamboo Acrobats. And I, I don't think we've got it quoted in this book, um, called the Siddhaka Sutta. And I sus- I'm pretty sure that we didn't include it in this book, but I'll just check. Nope. As far as I know. So the Siddhaka Sutta is called the, the Bamboo Acrobats. And it's a uh, uh, and the Buddha is describing this um, like a mother and father, uh, so a father and daughter um, uh, street acrobat team, and it's kind of uh, they had this um, little acrobatic performance where the dad had a, a long bamboo pole, and uh, the little girl would climb up the pole and then do various acrobatic tricks at the top of the pole. And so, if any of you have um, seen that in, this, in this, there's a sort of street theatre here in India. Um, it's uh, uh, this kind of thing that I think still carries on today. The book, um, A Fine Balance by Rohit Mystery, has got a picture of that on the cover. You've got the, a finger at the bottom of the cover, and then this bamboo pole, and then a little kind of, sort of three-year-old kid up at the top of the pole. And, a, and the pole is balanced on one finger. And it's a photograph, so it must be true. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that... Uh, Uh, that image in the, uh, the story that the Buddha is telling, saying once upon a time there were these bamboo acrobats. And then the father said to the daughter, his nickname was Frying Pan. Why she was called Frying Pan, nobody can, 
I'm not sure. There are probably theories about why she's called Frying Pan, but that's her, that's her name. Uh, uh, she's called Frying Pan. I said, so, okay, Frying Pan, you, uh, you climb up the pole. Yeah, I'll look out for you, and you look out for me, and, and uh, you climb up the pole, and then you can do your tricks, and then, and then we'll get a good feed from the public, and you can come down safely from the pole. That's the way to do it. And she says, no, you're wrong. I look out for myself, and you look out for yourself. And in that way, I'll be able to climb up the pole, do my tricks, get down safely, and we'll get a good feed from the crowd. And the Buddha said, it's the little girl who's right, and the father is wrong. That is by, um, uh, say, uh, taking care of yourself, um, that, uh, by, by looking after yourself, taking care of yourself, uh, that's how uh, things are most fully accomplished. And how do we, kind of, quote-unquote, take care of ourselves? Through practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. That is how uh, we most effectively take care of ourselves. Uh, but he said, and if you take care of yourself, you take care of others. That's the most effective way. If you practice the four foundations of mindfulness, that's the most helpful way of uh, aiding yourself, benefiting yourself. And by helping yourself, you also help, help others. Because if you fulfill the four foundations of mindfulness, become an arahant, then there's another arahant in the world and you can be a great benefit to others. And he says, but also, by benefiting, uh, so by benefiting yourself, you benefit others, but also, by benefiting others, you also benefit yourself. But that comes after. <laughs> so the final part of the sutta is where he says, by benefiting others, you benefit yourself. And how, by benefiting others, do you benefit yourself? By practicing loving-kindness, patience, uh, uh, sympathy and uh, non-violence. So metataya, avihingsa, uh, kantiya, and um, the fourth one, which I can't remember <laughs> what the Pali is, but uh, it's those four qualities of patience, kindness, um, non-violence, uh, and um, sympathy. That, uh, that, that's how we, uh, we so by uh, helping others, by practicing loving-kindness and compassion, and sympathy, and uh, non-violence, non-contention towards others, others, that is directly beneficial to ourselves as well. So it's a short sutta, it's called the Siddhaka Sutta, S-E-D-A-K-A, Siddhaka Sutta, or the Bamboo Acrobats, look it up on Google. So, and uh, that in itself, in a way, that gives you the whole picture of the, so the, the Southern Buddhist attitude towards, towards the practice. Really the most important thing, you know, you have the, the, um, you, you have it in mind that you want to benefit others as well, but the most effective way of helping others is to liberate your heart from greed, hatred and delusion. But also, uh, along the way, if you do help others, that's also directly beneficial uh, to you as well. There are a couple of things I'd also like to mention before we finish for this afternoon. Is um, another book which is extremely um, helpful. It's a simple, it's a very short book about teachings and emptiness. I mentioned the Heartwood from the Bodhi Tree by uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. So, from the Tibetan tradition, there's a book called Progressive Stages of Meditation on Emptiness by Kenpo Tsultrim Gyamso. And forgive my bad pronunciation. Kenpo, Kenpo Tsultrim Gyamso. And uh, he's a Kagyu uh, uh, Lama. 
And uh, that's a, it's a short book, but it's, it's really very, very helpful. And it's kind of similar in its construction to the um, Chula Sunyata Sutta, the long sutta that we read yesterday. So it goes from the sort of the, the coarser aspects of meditating on emptiness to the, to the most refined end. And the, the, so there's five stages, as I remember, that he describes. And the final one is called Shentong. The last two are Rantong and Shentong. And so Shentong is the, the last one. So the, and that bears a very, very close resemblance to the, the teachings of the, you know, the Thai forest tradition and the, the way that, um, uh, the, say, the, the teachers that I've had would, would talk about you know, uh, uh, wisdom, both as in respect to emptiness, of, uh, emptiness meaning emptiness of self, but also emptiness of other, and that sense of the, uh, uh, the, that quality of uh, not giving substance either to a, uh, uh, the subject or the object of the experience, uh, an experiencer or an experienced, but emptiness of self and emptiness uh, of other. I haven't read it for a few years, but I, uh, I was very impressed, and, um, and I feel it's a, it's a very good... Uh, clear guide. It was translated by um, uh, an English um, Tibetan scholar called Shen Pen Hukum, and so uh, who's a uh, Oxford scholar as well as a, a practitioner. So it's a, the translation is also very, very reliable, very readable. So I do recommend that. And the, the last thing I thought to um, to share is that uh, in in uh, in respect to the, um, the the teaching about the the five khandhas and the, the the, uh, the development of, of emptiness. So, uh, in this, um, uh, say, seeing of the five khandhas as being empty, this is in the, the sutta about the lump of foam and uh, the, um, uh, the mirage, the water bubble, and so on. At the end of that, then it says, seeing thus because the wise, noble disciple experiences disenchantment towards form, disenchantment towards feeling, disenchantment towards perception, disenchantment towards mental formations, disenchantment towards consciousness. Experiencing disenchantment, they become dispassionate. Through dispassion, the heart is liberated. When it's liberated, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. So uh, one of the, the things that somebody commented on, and it comes up quite regularly, when we see these words, say, disenchantment or dispassionate, it can seem like, okay, I'm supposed to be emotionally flat. You know, switch off the enthusiasm, go kind of turn in, kind of go neutral. And that, um, so to be disenchanted, we, in English, that has a quality of, like, of boredom, like, oh, you know, oh, it's lost its flavor, or like, oh, well, oh, yeah, it's just kind of not so interested anymore. You know, I'm disenchanted with that teacher. I don't know, he was kind of good at the beginning of the week, but, you know, Kind of disenchanted and Theravada Buddhism has kind of had an appeal, but yeah. <laughs> and so that it's uh, it's taken as a loss or uh, something that is um, uh, a kind of uh, a disappearance of color. The the, the colors washed out, and it's just everything is is just plain and you know, it's all sort of grey and and. Hmm. <laughs> So the, the disenchantment in this respect, uh, nibida. Uh, so the word disenchantment is in a way that the the mind is, is no longer enchanted. It's no longer uh, like the spell is broken. So rather it means like you've been released from a, a magical spell that you were under, <laughs> so that you were kept under a spell and you couldn't see clearly. Now the spell is lifted, and so that uh, it has been dispelled. Yeah, you uh, and so that. 
that it's more like the the images of that of, of seeing clearly. Nibida, like nibbana, means uh, coolness. Nibida, cooling down. There's a coolness. Uh, again, that might seem like oh, well, I was ex- I was excited, but it's kind of cooled off. You know, my my feelings are sort of cooled off. You know, yeah, we had a great relationship, but it's kind of cooled off. Yeah. So again, it, it comes across as something that's died. You know, the the food is cold. Um, the relationship is cold. Your your meditation practice is, is kind of uh, has uh, not got its vitality. But uh, again, it's it, the word nibbana. The Buddha deliberately used that as the the embodiment of the spiritual ideal because India is a hot country, right? And getting into the shade of the tree out of the heat is like ah. So that part of the reason, as I understand, and this is the kind of reflections that Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, would uh, speak about. So, you know, India's a hot country, Thailand's a hot country, coolness is attractive. <laughs> it doesn't mean death and, and uh, decay, it means relief from suffering. So, coming in out of the heat into the shade, ah, it's, it's not an idea. It's like when you put on a shoe and it fits, your brain might say, ah, oh, this shoe fits, but the feeling of comfort is, ah, it's not conceptual, it's non-verbal, it's a felt sense. So, Nibbana is that cooling down from the heated and the agitated. Ah. Also, um, he seems to have used it because uh, tapas, uh, in, uh, in the kind of Indian Vedic uh, yogic tradition, is you build up tapas, kind of psychic heat. Uh, like So uh, uh, Lord Shiva is a sort of supreme tapasin, the supreme ascetic, and he's got super-duper psychic powers, because a lot of tapas, a lot of heat. So the Buddha, um, uh, my suspicion is to get people's attention, says, no, 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 we're not into heat, we're, we're into coolness. <laughs> what? And so the, the, earlier in this book there's a chapter going fire, heat and coolness. And so the Buddha was quite gifted at using people's terminology, like this sort of, about the, the, the Bach clad ascetic language for Bahia and the Anidasana Vinyana for the Brahmakos. So I think because of uh, teaching people, uh, yogis who are into tapas, to no, 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 nibbana, coolness. So, what? Cooling down? No, no. We're, we're into tapas. We want more heat. Yeah. And then also fire worshippers. You know, fire worshipping was a major um, practice in his time. So no, let the fires go out. Uh, so the three fires, greed, hatred, and delusion, let the fires go out rather than keep the fires burning. And again, I think it was a deliberate sort of shock tactic to get people's attention. So it's just, this is not, this is not business as usual. <laughs> this is a different message. So that in, in that respect, nibida, disenchantment, or, or, uh, is, is a, uh, that coolness is not something dying or, or, or being flat or, or blank, but rather it's an easing of the heart, the kind of freeing of the heart from agitation and from delusion. So the, the enchantment, the, the magical spell that you are under, is lifted, like um, the. Uh, but sometimes we like to be enchanted, like those of you who've watched The Matrix. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're familiar with that story of The Matrix, that uh, everyone's living in this enchanted world, and um, then Neo, the the hero of the story, gets presented the blue pill or the red pill. <laughs> the blue pill will keep the the enchantment going. You know, the red pill will wake you up. Which, which one do you want? So do you choose to wake up or do you choose the, to keep the illusion going? And then, uh, and then when he takes the red pill, I think, he takes the red pill and he wakes up and he realizes he's just this kind of naked body in a pod 
with his brain used, being used to power the, this kind of uh, massive artificial intelligence system that's running the world. It's, it's a, what they call a rude awakening. <laughs> but uh, his mentor, uh, Morpheus, which means change, Morpheus uh, makes this wonderful statement, Welcome to the desert of the wheel. <laughs> so it's kind of idang dukang for the Hollywood watching generation. <laughs> Welcome to the desert of the real. So, oh, can I go back to my room, please? And again, speaking of bumper stickers in California, that was an another popular one was, uh, I've given up my search for truth and I'm now looking for a good fantasy. <laughs> but unfortunately, once you've taken the red pill, yeah, it doesn't work anymore. The enchantment doesn't work anymore. So that um, being disenchanted and then dispassionate, it can seem like to be dispassionate is to, okay, so I'm supposed to just be kind of bland and flat and kind of not excited or interested in anything. Um, because we use the word passion for meaning uh, interested or enthusiastic. But uh, uh, the, the quality of chanda means enthusiasm or interest. Uh, that sense of uh, um, engagement, kind of excitement, really, um, that the, the mind engages, it's, it's uh, drawn into uh, attending to something. So, the, in the Buddha's teaching, chanda is a prerequisite condition for the path to enlightenment. Chanda is one of the, the first of the four bases of success. You need to be interested, you need to be enthusiastic, you need to engage. So to succeed at anything, whether it's cooking a meal or practicing meditation or, or um, going for a walk in the park, you need to be interested. So chanda is a prerequisite condition, it's a necessity. Uh, viraga, dispassion, raga is connected to the English word rage. So raga has a sort of self-centered, agitated and, uh, and heated um, quality, a contentious quality. So. Uh, uh, in English, passion can refer to chanda or to raga. <laughs> and so it's, it's unfortunate. Again, there isn't any perfect English word for it. But, so dispassion is about raga, about letting go of the, the raga. Um, and, um, uh, but it shouldn't be understood as uh, not being engaged, or not being interested, not being enthusiastic. As long as that enthusiasm is something that's based on uh, skillful uh, intentions and and is uh, guided by mindfulness and wisdom, then it's going to have a good result. So that uh, when we talk about dispassion, it's not being emotionally flat or neutral, or switching off your personality or your interests. Rather, it's using your energy and your interests, because the, the second of those bases of success is virya, energy. Chanda, virya, jitta, vimansa. So you need to be enthusiastic, interested, you need to apply energy, you need to think about what it is that you're doing, and then vimangsa, which I mentioned before, is the reviewing. Okay, I was interested, I put energy into it, I thought about what I was doing, and then, okay, did it work? What was the result of that? So the number one is chanda. So dispassion doesn't mean not having any chanda. It means letting that, the, the heat of the, of the, uh, the kind of agitated raga fade out. Can you please spell the word chanda? C-H-A-N-D-A. Chanda. Not the Australian chanda, which means to vomit. Chanda. I, mean, I don't know how you spell it in, 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 in uh, Devanagari script, but C-H-A-N-D-A is how it's written in English. 
So it's also interesting that uh, viraga, dispassion, is an anagram of viagra. <laughs> so I've got a suspicion there was a Pali scholar working for Pfizer in the in the, the medicine naming department. So I've got a really a really good joke. I've got a really good name for this uh, this product. So it's kind of, if, if it wasn't done deliberately, it was, it's a very very strange coincidence. Is um, the uh, viraga is the opposite of viagra. <laughs> So that's enough for today, and so leave it there. We can share our blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom austerity and vigor may the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve the Buddha is my excellent refuge Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and illusion be dispelled.